Uh, let's turn again in our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and uh, our text this morning was read to you. Uh, actually, our text will cover the whole chapter, uh, but we'll, of course, need to look at it in more of a brief uh, summary kind of way uh, as we deal with this uh, passage that teaches us how the gospel, the good news about Jesus, began to be opposed uh, by the religious leaders. Uh, I don't know if you're a good news first person or a bad news first kind of person. You know when someone comes and tells you, hey, do you want the good news or the bad news? <laughs> and, and which do you want first? That's a really bad choice. You, you might have heard about the, the son who came to his dad and said, dad, I've got some good news and some bad news. And the dad says, son, I'm really, really busy. All I have time for is the good news. Can you just tell me the good news really quick? And the son said, yeah, the good news is, is that the airbags on your brand new BMW work really well. That's the good news. Yeah. <laughs> or if you go to the doctor and the doctor says, I've got some good news and some bad news. Give me the good news first, doc. The good news is that they're naming a disease after you. That's not the kind of good news you want to hear either. When, when we look at news and, and a proclamation, and we look at the effect that it has on different kinds of people, you'd think that we were dealing with a good news, bad news kind of situation here in Acts. Because the same news, the same message that rallied thousands of people was the same message that others opposed with such defiance. What is going on here? When in Acts chapter 4, verse 2, look at the first two words in, in, um, in this, that verse. Look at chapter 4 and verse 2. The first two words are these, greatly annoyed. The message that had brought thousands of people to believe in this, in, to, to be, uh, be Christians, essentially, that same message is the exact same message that greatly annoyed these religious leaders. Now, the term that's translated greatly annoyed could be rendered and is in the New International Version rendered greatly disturbed. We can say that the same news that delighted was also a news that deeply disturbed. What I want to do this morning is look at the, the topic of the gospel and from this passage, the gospel as the good disturbing news or the good news that disturbs. Because the response of the religious leaders in this day, uh, th this passage here, begins a theme which, like a domino effect, continues throughout the rest of the book of Acts and, yes, throughout all of church history, and that is this. Whenever the gospel is preached, it always disturbs people. Whenever the gospel preached, it always disturbs people. And that raises the question, why? Why is it that the same news that delights some people disturbs other people? And you might think, well, it might depend on the kind of people we're talking about. Maybe there are some people that are inclined religiously, like they, they're, they just are more open to different ideas, or they're more gullible, or they're more likely to believe in the miraculous. You think, okay, those kinds of people are delighted by the gospel. Other kind of people who may be more skeptical, a little more sophisticated, have a little well, more well-developed critical thinking skills, they're more likely to be repulsed by or offended or disturbed by the gospel. But the reality is... The gospel is not rightly understood unless you understand why, unless it disturbs you. 
The Apostle Paul himself, who became uh, what is arguably the greatest Christian thinker of all time, who penned many of our New Testament letters, he was so deeply disturbed by the gospel that he had to reassess his entire religious and academic career. The hearers of the audience on the day of Pentecost were so disturbed by the gospel, it says they, they were cut to the heart. Later on in the book of Acts, in chapter 24 and verse 25, Paul is preaching before some really, uh, um, some, some dignities, a king and, uh, and some other Roman officials. And, and, and it says that one of them, his name is Felix, he, when he heard the preaching of the Christian message, he trembled and he said, he, he said, Paul, you can stop talking now. What is it about the Christian message that is so disturbing? I think that we should all be interested in, in knowing why. Because if you're a Christian, you should understand that what you believe is not a matter of delight to everybody. And if you're not, if you, if you consider yourself, I, I'm not sure what this is all about, or I'm trying to find, or I'm actually, to be honest, rather skeptical about the Christian message, and, and I do find some elements of it disturbing. You deserve to know what they are. In this chapter, we find three reasons why the Christian message both disturbs and delights. It disturbs and delights because of the facts it reveals, because of the judgment it renders, and because of the choice it requires. And I'm going to, I'm going to go through these one at a time, all right? So here's a little mental map for us. The, the, the Christian message, that is, if you're a Christian, the message you believe. If you're not a Christian, the message you are being invited to believe. Why does it both disturb and delight? Why does it provoke such polar opposite reactions? Well, it is because of the facts it reveals, it's because of the judgment it renders, and it's because of the choice it requires. So let's first of all look at the facts it reveals. If you look at the text here, look at Peter's uh, response to the question uh, in, um, in chapter 4. He says in verse, uh, verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. In that, in that uh, response, Peter draws their attention to two facts they couldn't deny. The first fact was the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and the second fact was the healing of the lame man. Now, the, the religious leaders, the Sadducees, the Sadducees, by the way, were kind of a sect of, of leaders that, that would downplay the supernatural at that time. Some of you may think that everybody in Bible times believed in miracles. No, 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 not everybody. In fact, many people did not. The Sadducees did not. They did not believe in the resurrection. So you have the Sadducees, the priests, and you had the captain of the temple, and, and they, they are, they're asking Peter to give an answer as to what, why they're say, saying this. And Peter says, well, I have two facts for you. Uh, one fact is this. There is a lame man, a man who had been lame for over 40 years, and you can see him. He's hopping up and down right next to me right now. Now. The Bible says that he was jumping and leaping for joy. They couldn't deny it. Thousands of people saw it. And there's another fact that, that a, a lot of people are saying too, and that is Jesus, whom you crucified, is now alive. And the two facts are connected in a most vital way. Because Jesus is alive, he is the power by which that lame man is healed, and you can't deny it. So what Christianity does, what the Christian message does, is it, prevents, it, it presents facts that you can't ignore. The religious leaders, they couldn't say, no, he's not healed, 
because the guy was jumping up and down who had never walked before. And they couldn't say, no, Jesus didn't, raise, uh, didn't rise from the dead because they couldn't produce Jesus' corpse. He had, he had hundreds of people testifying that he was actually alive. The reason why the Christian message many people find disturbing is because it presents facts that you simply can't ignore. It presents unignorable facts. I want, to, I want to examine four of those kinds of facts that are unignorable that the Christian message presents. First of all, there are facts about the claims of Jesus you can't ignore. Now, some of you, if you're not, if you've never read through the Gospels, the, the first four books of the, of the New Testament, or if you're unfamiliar with the life of Jesus, you, and, and if you've mostly uh, been accustomed to Jesus through a religious artwork, uh, you might think that Jesus was a really... Um, self-effacing, um, almost anemic kind of guy who, who really wouldn't have said anything offensive or, or sturdy, just, just the model of meekness and, and self-effacing. But you read the, read the Gospels, just try it. If you've never done it, try it. Read it and, and see what kind of portrait of Jesus emerges. Jesus, now contrast Jesus to other religious leaders throughout world history like Confucius and Muhammad and, and the Buddha. And they're always saying things like this, don't, don't follow me, uh, that's, that's, the, that's the way, that's the way to follow. Jesus was doing the complete opposite. Jesus kept on saying, follow me. In fact, he told people, he said, if you don't love me so much that it makes your love for your mom look like hatred? You don't love me enough. Who says things like that? Jesus said, you need to come to me as a thirsty person would come to water. You need to come to me like a starving man would come after a loaf of bread. You need to come to me like a blind person would crave to see. That's how much you'd need me. You see, what Jesus was doing, his, you can't ignore his claims. You can't think, oh, Jesus was this kind of, this really nice guy, didn't stir the pot, didn't make any trouble. No, he was making radical claims about himself. In fact, here's another radical claim that almost got him, him killed before his crucifixion, and it was this. He was speaking to a bunch of people who knew the old, their Old Testament, that is, the, the Jewish scriptures, and he said something about their forefather who preceded Jesus by at least 2,000 years, and his name is Abraham. He said, before Abraham existed, I existed. They, they picked up rocks and they started to throw them at him. Why? Jesus, you, here, here's, the, here's the deal, my friends. You cannot read the claims of Jesus at face value and find them ignorable. Here's something else you can't ignore. You may be, you may be able to say, well, he was a lunatic. He was just crazy. There, there's been a lot of megalomaniacs in this universe, and he was just one of them. But, you, but that, because you say, well, if he's going to claim something like that, surely he's going to be the most self-centered kind of guy there, there was possible. But, but in fact, when you look at Jesus' claims, his radically self-centered claims versus his radically selfless character, a completely different portrait emerged. Even though Jesus claimed to be, yes, the Son of God, yes, the Anointed One, Yes, like water to the thirsty and bread to the hungry. He also was serving other people. He always did what was good. So now from what emerges from the Gospels is a portrait of an utterly baffling, paradoxical person who can be only explained in these terms. How could, it be, how could a man be called good who made such claims? How could a man be called bad who acted in such a way if it's not true? 
It must be true. You have to wrestle with the claims of Jesus. You can't ignore them. The claims of Jesus, the character of Jesus, but there's a third set of facts about the Christian message that you cannot ignore, and it is this, the facts around the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here's something that the religious leaders that were present in, in uh, first century Jerusalem didn't, didn't do to refute Christianity. They didn't say, all right, we can just stop this thing once and for all. We can just say he didn't rise, rise from the dead. Here's his corpse, or here's a compelling case that Jesus' disciples stole the body. They didn't do it. The one thing they could have done that would have completely blown apart Christianity was to say, Jesus is dead. But the fact is, they couldn't do it. The best they could do was this, stop talking. Here's the reality. When you can't, when, it, when arguments don't work, just resort to violence. That's what they had to do. And the fourth set of facts we find in, in if you'll look in chapter 4 and verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Here it is. The character of the followers of Jesus was unignorable. They were like, when Peter and John, with sincerity and humility, with utter transparency and honesty, with a passion to communicate the truth, stood before them and were saying, essentially, you can put us in prison, you can, you can kill us, you can whip us, it doesn't matter, we're just going to tell you the truth, we're going to tell you it is for what it is. All of them in their minds are something like, There's something about them reminds us of someone we knew before. Oh, that's right, Jesus. They've been with Jesus. In fact, more than that, they have Jesus' spirit living within them. The claims of Christ, the character of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, the followers of Christ, all these are facts that are unignorable. Now, here's the point I want to make under this, under this first heading of, of why we find the gospel both disturbing and delightful. You don't get disturbed by things you can ignore, do you? If this were ignorable, if they could just sweep it under the rug, forget about it, put it out of our mind, it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't bother you. It wouldn't bother them. But the fact is they can't ignore it. They can't deny it. In fact, you see what they say when they hold counsel. Look at verse 15. When they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed of the, through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. The message of Christianity is disturbing because it is undeniable. And you don't get bothered by things you can ignore. I don't know if any of you men have had this experience. You're lying in bed fast asleep at night and suddenly you find yourself awakened by your wife saying, honey, did you hear that noise? And you're like, what noise? That noise. No, it's just your imagination. Go back to sleep. I don't want to be bothered. Then you open your eyes. And then you start thinking, I wonder if she did hear something. And so you go downstairs, hoping to find what? Nothing. Because you want to go back to bed undisturbed. But if you find a door open, you thought for sure you had shut. You're not going back upstairs undisturbed. 
And if you feel a cool breeze blowing from a window you knew was locked when you went to bed, you're not going back to bed undisturbed. Why? Because you can't ignore it. And here's the point, my friends. If you go to investigate the claims of Christianity, if you go to investigate the case for the resurrection, if you go and read the Gospels about the character of Jesus Christ, you're always going to find a door open you thought was shut. You're always going to find something that says, oh, I can't ignore that. Oh, no. What am I going to do about this one? If you don't want to be disturbed by the claims of Christianity, if you want to go and just sleep and rest, then don't start prying into the evidence for the resurrection or don't start reading the claims of Christ or don't start letting yourself be exposed to the character of Christ or to the genuine followers of Christ because if you do, you will not be able to ignore it because that is the nature of the Christian faith. It cannot be ignored. It reveals facts that are unignorable that the people of Jesus' day, the people of his, the disciples' day, and the people of our day cannot ignore it. Now, let me just apply this in a couple ways. First of all, to those of you who are followers of Jesus, is your character such that people would say, like these religious leaders who oppose the gospel, he's been with Jesus? She's been with Jesus. Can people say about you, even though, even though there are things going on in her life that just would, would militate against her peace, she has such a peace, he has such a confidence, he has such a humility, is it evident to people around you that you've been with Jesus, my friends? Your testimony for Christ can be the reason why someone would say, it was unignorable. I couldn't get past it. I couldn't see past the fact that he was so humble or so steadfast or so honest when, when everything in, in that work situation would have been pushing him to be dishonest or so ethical. This is unignorable, my friends. Do you have that kind of testimony with the people that know that you are a Christian? Are you living out the Christian message in your life? I was talking with uh, Pastor Jason. Pastor Jason, uh, he was telling me this uh, story a few weeks ago about a young man uh, he knew when he was ministering in Mexico who had a friend of his, a friend who was an atheist. Atheist didn't even, not only did he not believe in Jesus Christ, he didn't even believe that God existed. And yet because of the testimony of his Christian friend, he began to see there must be something to this. And he came to the leaders of that church and he said, he said, now I know I know there must be a God. I just need to understand why. And the thing that had persuaded him was not intellectual arguments. It was the simple character of his friend. My believing friend this morning, that, that can be you. You can have that kind of testimony. How do you have it? By spending time with Jesus. How do you spend time with Jesus? Here it is. You get into the Bible and you get into it every single day and you read it and you pray over it and you work its words and its logic right down into your mind and your heart until it just flows through your veins as it were. There's, there's no other way to be like Jesus than to know who Jesus was and to, 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 to obey his words and to meditate upon his words. Here's what I would encourage you to do. As we go into the new year, 
A lot of people make New Year's resolutions. Maybe you made some New Year's resolutions back in 2021 that for one reason or another just completely fell apart. Well, how about preparing to revive those resolutions so that in this coming year, you're going to be reading the Bible every day so that you can understand more and more who Jesus is so that he can shape your character so that you can make an impact for him. May it be said about all of us who follow Jesus uh, that other people would be able to say, they're with Jesus. We recognize it in their character. The Christian message is both disturbing and delightful because of the facts it reveals, but also, and secondly, because of the judgment it renders. Look back at the text in verse 11. Peter is speaking to these leaders who had asked him upon what, in what name or by what power they had healed the lame man. And he says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He said, you've rejected the person that God has appointed to be the Messiah. That is the anointed prophet, priest, and king. And moreover, if you look back in the previous verse, that is verses, verses, verses 9 and 10, he says, you killed him. You crucified your Messiah. You crucified the one that God long foretold in your scriptures would be the one that would take away the sins of the world. You crucified him. You see what Peter is doing? He is drawing attention to the fact that they are under judgment. There is a judgment that is rendered. Now, you might say here, ah, this is what preachers do. They talk about judgment and guilt and people being sinners. That's how Christianity wields its power, trying to worm down into people's consciences and make them feel guilty so they'll have to be keep coming back and, and, and need the church. Do you realize that guilt existed long before 1900, the year 1900? <laughs> guilt, guilt has always been a part of the human condition. In fact, I was, I was reading a while back, uh, a book that was talking about the Egyptian Book of the Dead. And, and this, is, this goes back thousands of years before the time of Christ. You realize that people, people way back then struggled with guilt so much, they had this conception of coming to the god Osiris, who they thought, and I'll just read a summary, that, that they, they would, after, after uh, traversing uh, a, a long journey, this is after they had died, so they'd be in the underworld, or they'd be in the, in the world of the dead. Uh, they would come to the god Os Osiris, and Osiris would question the dead, weighing each candidate's heart in the scale against a feather to trust, to test his truthfulness. Those who failed this examination would be condemned to lie forever in their tombs, hungering and thirsting, fed upon hideous crocodiles, and never coming forth to see the sun. You see, this idea of guilt and dread of punishment is so deeply ingrained into the human condition because we have a sense that we are all unworthy, even though we can't explain why. The message of Christianity is not a message primarily occupied with telling us that we are guilty. It's explaining why we feel so. It's saying those feelings of unworthiness, that feeling of wretchedness that constantly nags at your conscience, here's why. It's that there is a righteous God that we have all, whose glory we have all come short of. That is the judgment being rendered. 
It's nothing foreign. It's not a feeling that's foreign to us. The message of Christianity is saying this. God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. You want to know who God is? Jesus is showing you. And to reject Jesus is to reject God. That was the guilt that they bore. And that is the guilt that anyone bears who rejects Jesus. Once you are confronted with the unignorable facts about Christ, the Christian message proclaims, it makes neutrality impossible. You, to, to reject Jesus is to reject God. Now, you might be thinking, okay, you said that this, this is why the Christian message is disturbing to people. I could see that's disturbing. Now, can you tell me how in the world this could possibly be a matter of delight? I mean, how could this possibly matter of comfort? Because you've come in here this morning and you're thinking, you don't, I don't need a preacher telling me I'm a sinner. I've been reminded of that for the past six days since last Sunday, and I'm reminded of that every morning. My conscience tells me, here is the good news of the gospel, and that is that although you are more flawed than you ever knew, you are more loved because Jesus did die on the cross for you and rose again for your salvation. The judgment that should have fallen upon you and me was fallen upon Jesus, and that's why our sins can be forgiven. And that's why the message of the gospel is a message that, yes, it disturbs, but in disturbing us, in disturbing our conscience, it also frees us, it also delights us. That's why we could sing those songs we sang, Jesus paid it all. Paid what? My debt of sin, all to him I owe. That is a message that both deeply disturbs and deeply delights. And I would say this, no one has understood the Christian message who also does not understand what it means for their consciences to be cut, for their hearts to be smitten, and for them to be deeply disturbed by this conviction. I am a great sinner, but he is a greater savior. That's what it means to believe the gospel. And that is the testimony of Christians throughout all of history. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his first letter to Timothy, said this in chapter 1 and verse 15. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost. John Wesley, rather, uh, yes, John Wesley, John Newton, I'm sorry. John Newton, a famous composer of the song Amazing Grace, said this. And think of how this reflects both the disturbance and the delight of the gospel. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. What makes amazing grace a sweet sound? It's this, that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost. That's disturbing. But now I'm found. That's delightful. Was blind. That's disturbing. But now I see. That's delightful. You see how the Christian message cuts both ways. You can't walk away from a confrontation with the cross and, and with your pride unscathed, but neither can you walk away from truly believing in the mess of the cross and feel a sense of despair because God raises you up. That's the whole point of the Psalms when David says in Psalm 40, for example, I was in a pit of miry clay and God raised me up out of the pit. He set my feet on solid ground. He put a song into my mouth. What's the song? Praise to God. That's the song of the believer. That's the, that's the essence of the Christian message. That's why it both disturbs and delights. That's why the people, Peter's first hearers at the day of Pentecost were cut to the heart. My friend, has your heart been cut by this message? My believing friend, have you forgotten that the message of the gospel should be the greatest source of humility in your life and of joy? I think of, I think with sorrow, the many times I speak with people who are, haven't 
haven't been in church for a long time or have completely walked away from Christianity, and their constant complaint about Christians is that Christians are have a sense of superiority and are arrogant and hypocritical. My friends, I hope that would never be said about anybody in this room because you have in the gospel all the resources to completely flatten all sense of superiority, hypocrisy, and pride. Do you think that just because you were lost and Christ found you, that's any reason to gloat over anybody else? Just because you recognize that you were a sheep upon a rocky crag and the shepherd reached down with his shepherd's crook and lifted you up that you have any reason to brag? No, my friends, the, the, the message of Christianity, if anything, is a message that deeply humbles us. But don't forget also that it's a message that brings you greatest delight. The judgment that it renders is a judgment that we can look on and say, it, was, it is good to know. The judgment that I deserve to have, the judgment that fell upon Jesus Christ as my substitute. Yes, the Christian message both disturbs and delights. I love the song that goes like this. We've sung it here before. From my stricken heart with tears, two wonders I confess. What are those two wonders? The wonders of redeeming love and my unworthiness. I wonder if there's someone here and that's almost too hard for you to believe. You are, you have, again, like I said earlier, you have no need for someone to tell you a sinner. Your conscience is telling it to you all the time. But can you just, can you believe the fact that, that God does love you? How can you ever believe that? What can ever win your heart over with such a beauty? It is this. Jesus died on the cross to save you from your sins. Now, that brings me to the third division here, and that is that the Christian message is disturbing good news because of the choice that it requires. And this is so clear from our text in verse 12. After giving the facts of the Christian message and, and specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ and these other things that we talked about, the claims, the character uh, of Christ, the case for his resurrection and the character of his followers. And then after talking about the, fact, the judgment that it renders, yes, the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed Son of God, the King of Kings, makes it so that we cannot be neutral. There, there, it, it, it follows... Simply, logically, all this hangs together like links in a chain. If, if, in fact, the judgment is you are such a sinner that the only way to be received by God is to have the goodness of Jesus put applied to you, then the only thing for you to do is to seek salvation, seek that in Jesus. And that's why Peter says there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. The choice that the Christian message requires, here it is, my friends, it's an exclusive choice. Now, you can understand why this is disturbing to people. Because when you start talking about the exclusive claims of Christianity, a lot of people get really worried. Like, only Jesus. Okay, here it goes. Here is that narrow-minded we're the only right ones kind of mindset. I've heard many times that, that, that people say, well, a better perspective would be this. Religions and all their claims to truth are like different 
different roads going up the same mountain. We're all just on, or different, it's like the, the blind men uh, trying to figure out what an elephant is. One man has his hand on the side, the other is feeling the tusk, the other has his hand on the tail, and the one says, it's like a wall, it's like a spear, it's like, it's like a rope. And that's what it is, and if we could be humble and admit that none of us has a full picture of the truth. Well, those analogies only work if, if for in the elephant situation if you're the only one with your eyes open. Or in the mountain situation, if you're the only one in a helicopter looking down at everybody. <laughs> it's, it's the, both of those metaphors, as, as, as well-intentioned as they are, and, and I will fully affirm that those are well-intentioned metaphors, but they, they presume a perspective that nobody else has. And in fact, they themselves are a religious perspective. They're an exclusive religious perspective. So there's no, there's no escaping the, the fact that, that however you look at it, you're going to make a religious claim, even if your religious claim is all religions lead to God. But I think behind that concern is a valid point, and that is that religion tends to create what some, per, what some person, some, someone has called a slippery slope in our hearts that produces pride and with the pride, a sense of superiority, and with a sense of superiority, a lot of fighting among people, and we see that historically. It's, it's a fact. And I'll freely admit that. But the question I ask is this. What if it's possible for there to be a faith that instead of creating that pride in your heart, actually creates the only ingredient for peace and reconciliation? And that is the message of the gospel. That yes, it is true that, that, that mere religion, that is my good works, my efforts, my, my aim to please God and thus compare myself to other people. Yes, that does create pride in people's hearts. And yes, that does create a sense of superiority if that's the way you're choosing. But if you choose a faith, if you realize that actually my good works count for nothing, then you have no, no step to stand on. You have no reason to elevate yourself against anyone else. And that, in fact, is the only response to the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ. The gospel, that is the Christian message, if genuinely embraced, does not produce pride, does not produce despair. Rather, it produces a sort of humility that, that everybody recognizes as a virtue that, that human beings must have. But nevertheless, this is what causes some people to be disturbed by it. And yet, it, yet, if it is true that this does disturb, yes, Jesus is the only way, is that not also a reason to find delight in it? Because what other way could there be? This is what Peter confessed to Jesus when Je after Jesus was teaching and he offended a lot of people. Remember I said we tend to think that Jesus didn't offend anybody. Oh, no. In fact, Jesus was not trying to build a crowd. He, made, he gave some teachings that caused hundreds of people to stop following him. In fact, he turned to his inner circle of 12 disciples and he says, do you guys want to go away too? And Peter said, who would we go to? You have the words of eternal life. The Christian message, yes, is inherently disturbing, but it is precisely that that makes it good. What does it look like to believe this, though? I mean, the, the response to this message is not this. So try harder. So work more. No, the response to this message is believe. 
This is what Jesus proclaimed in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. The kingdom of God has drawn near. Not so try harder to get into it, but repent and believe it. What does it look like to believe? Well, all throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus gave story after story after story to tell us what it looks like to believe. He said, here's what it looks like. Here's what it looks like to receive this message. It looks like this woman who had 10 coins, valuable coins, and she lost one of them. And even though she still had nine, she went through an entire house and swept it all so she could find that one little coin. And when she found it, she started going to all her neighbors and saying, look at this coin. I found it. It was lost, but now here it is. It said, being part of the kingdom of heaven is, is like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. And he noticed that just one of those was missing. And so he went out and found that one sheep and he brought it home on his shoulders rejoicing and he said to all his neighbors, look, I found my missing sheep. Jesus says, that's what it's like to come into the kingdom of God. And the third parable there that Jesus gives there in Luke 15 is that of the prodigal son, which I love so much. I hope you don't get tired of my repeating it. But a man who had two sons and the, the younger said, Father, give me my inheritance. And he goes off and he spends all of his father's, his inheritance on what the Bible says, riotous, reckless, prodigal living. And as he finds himself in a pigsty, wishing he could feed upon the husks that were thrown to the swine, he comes to himself and he says, my father's servants have more than I have to eat. I'm going to go and return to my father and I'm going to tell him I've sinned. And I'm not worthy to be called your son because I've taken what's yours and I've squandered it and I've wasted it. And yet the father sees him at a distance, comes running and embraces him. That's what it looks like to believe. What Jesus was saying is so simple. He's saying this, you're the lost coin. You're the lost sheep. And you're the prodigal son. And if you'd only see that, that God is searching for you and welcoming you in and believe that, then, my friend, you have full forgiveness and be part of the kingdom of God. Would you bow your heads? Yes, yes, the Christian message does disturb. It tells us of our lostness it tells us of our flawed condition. Yet it also tells us that we can be found. I don't know, maybe there's someone here who, who needs to be found this morning. You, you are, you'd say, I'm lost. I'm just lost. You have everything you need to know in this proclamation. Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again so that lost people, flawed people, Broken people like you can be found and healed. Do you have the humility to admit that? And, and those of you who believe that message, keep on believing it. And let it affect every part of your life. Our Father, I pray that you would take this, this message and seal it to our hearts so that it would do us good throughout this week until we gather again in Jesus' name.